This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Block. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Wow, that's a great question. You know what? That's an interesting question. Oh, great question. Really good question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and it's another great trio of writers joining me today, so let's get right to it. I hope everyone out there is uh, staying safe and healthy and wearing a mask when you go out. Staying inside and reading is great and all, but we'd all love to get outside too and not be constantly worried about if we're six feet away from other people the way we absolutely should be, right? But that's where my conversation with the author of the new book, The Ancestor, writer Lee Matthew Goldberg started. The same way, I mean, pretty much all conversations start these days by asking how it was going during quarantine and Lee was feeling the effects of lockdown just like the rest of us. So being uh, being cooped up, not your thing though. Uh, I mean, I was cooped up for about a month and then I just go to Central Park every day and write. So, I mean, nobody needs to feel sorry for me. Like it, it hasn't been <laughs> so bad. So wait, you just take a laptop and uh, slap on a mask and go sit in the, in the sunshine? I mean, that's kind of my office every day, so nothing really has changed this summer except that yeah i'm wearing a mask while i'm doing it wow you might be the first author i've ever heard of who just is a completely alfresco writer yeah i mean i have like a tree that's my tree that i I, for about 10 years i've been going to and as long as somebody isn't lying in front of it um, i'm good to go wow someday they'll, they'll put a plaque there I hope so. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I'm not quite at that level, but maybe one day. I mean, there's a lot of trees, so like to give me that one, I don't think it should be too difficult. <laughs> I mean, I think this is a little bit made for writers in particular. Like we're used to kind of being by ourselves a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing people, but I'm starting to miss just life a little bit in terms of that. Um, but my writing has kind of been great. Like I've just been getting a lot done because what the hell else am I doing? Well, that's good that you're still being productive. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully it lasts. Well, The Ancestor sounds like quite a wild ride. A man wakes up in Alaska and thinks he's been frozen in time for more than 100 years. I mean, basically, yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask, I mean, were you nervous for the response when you went out pitching something that's that wild? Yes. And there was a lot of pushback, especially um, from big houses that really didn't know what to do with the book because it's a thriller, it's literary, it's historical, it's sci-fi and supernatural. So it checks all these boxes that you think would make it unique, but then it also wound up, I think, what what was hurting it in terms of pitching it. And then luckily, uh, Chris Radigan, in all due respect, loved it for all those reasons. Yeah, I, I have been there. Sometimes you uh, you put a little one too many layers in there, and all of a sudden, publishing doesn't know what shelf to put it on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they like things to fall into sort of boxes. It's this meets this, and if there's this meets this meets this meets this, um, it, it almost kind of sends them into a spiral, and they don't know what to do with it. I guess. <laughs> now, do you have a history with Alaska? Have you traveled there? Been spent time there? <laughs> None. I was really. Uh, intrigued by the the Alaskan gold rush. Um, So I just started doing research about that. Um, And the the man who wakes up in in the wilderness who believes he's from a different era, um, it's that he's a a prospector from the Alaskan gold rush, or at least he believes so. Um, So the book kind of came out of that. It it came out of just sort of 
this fascination because there's so much about the California gold rush, but Alaska, because it was such a shorter amount of time, I think gets sidelined. Um, so really the research led to the book. I mean, how do you think uh, you would do there? Like a, a New Yorker uh, taken and plunked down in Alaska. I, I don't know how that would go. Right. Um, I mean, I had a design pre-COVID to do like a book tour out in Alaska and to kind of really go there. That is not quite going to happen. Um, um, but the magic of, you know, documentaries and the internet um, I talked to a bunch of fishermen who were, uh, one of the other main characters is a, is a, a fisherman. Um, so I really just pulled from sort of other people's experiences, uh, for the book. Um, and hopefully one day I actually get to go to Alaska and, and see it for myself. I've been to cold places, so I feel like I at least, <laughs> like I've spent some time in Scandinavia and Iceland. So I, I, I got cold down. Um, but Alaska is its own animal. For sure. Yeah. And I'm realizing now that I just sort of did just describe the plot of that show, Northern Exposure. That was... <laughs> I love Northern Exposure. We watched some actually when I was um, writing the book uh, about a year or two ago. Um, and Does it hold up? I- I've wondered yeah, if that show holds up. I think all the shows from that era kind of have a similar feel to it. Um, you know, we're used to, I think, just a little faster and storytelling now, but it's good and all the characters are great. And yeah, yeah, it still holds up. All right. I'm going to have to revisit that one. Well, this is, it's sort of a different take on kind of a fish out of water story or, you know, like a a man out of time story. I mean, is that the, the literary element you were talking about is, is to take a character out of a familiar situation and drop them into this completely uh, unfamiliar world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a person really struggling um, to figure out who he is. Uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it must be like to deal with amnesia and to have some inkling of who you are, but there's no way to be absolutely sure, especially because um, everybody he knew from life has been dead for maybe about <laughs> years. Um, so his entire link to this other world is gone. And then he sees this man in the Alaskan wilderness who um, he looks very similar to, that he has a mirror on him, so he's able to look at himself. And he follows this man and he kind of um, starts to uh, really become obsessed with his life and imagine that the man is a progeny of his and that he's his ancestor, his maybe great-great-great-grandfather. Um, and his, his so belief in wanting to connect with people um, allows him to believe even more that he's a part of this person's life. Now, do you have strong family connections yourself, or is this a, a way to, to work out something that's missing in your own life through the through the page? Um, am I getting am I getting too deep there? No, no, not at, <laughs> not at all. And I, I have very strong family connections. Um, and when I was writing the book, my dad passed away. Um, oh. so a lot of that kind of became infused into the book and still connecting. It's almost like still connecting with somebody who's moved on to a different world, much like this character um, in my book as well. Um, And so in some ways, even though my dad's not a character in the book, he's really alive on every page for me. Um, so it makes me really excited that the book is actually going to come out now. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, The ways that, that real life can creep onto the page are surprising sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I'm used to really disassociating myself with a lot of my fiction, and it, it, it's really not a part of my life. And 
This one, I think on paper, nobody would notice except for me and maybe a few people very close to me um, that would see elements of, of the relationship I had with him in the book as well. I mean, we had a great relationship. So um, I, you know, I hope that that kind of comes through, at least for myself. Well, now your debut novel, Slow Down, was also just reissued. Yep. What is it like to revisit an older work again? Um, it was really cool. Uh, I, 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 they did it as sort of a tease for the ancestor, um, and uh, I, I was really happy to do it. It got a new cover, um, and kind of gives it a whole new life. Reading it again five years later, you notice sort of the good and how you've kind of changed as an author too. I wrote that book when I was 23, and then I stuck it in the desk for about eight or nine years. Um, So I see some elements of like my early 20s in that book, which is interesting, but then also a little embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going through that now. I've been uh, listening to my first audio book version of one of my novels, you know, reading, reading along and listening to it and, and, you know, trying to pick out if there's any, you know, mispronounced names or anything, but going back over something you wrote on that kind of granular level, I've gone through this roller coaster. Like at first it was like, Oh my gosh, someone's reading my book to me. This is so exciting. It's, it's, and he's got this great deep baritone. It sounds fabulous. And now I'm like three quarters in and I'm like, I am the worst writer in the history of the world. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's true. Like I would hope, you know, I mean, there's some authors they are one and done and that's it. And I, I I really hope that wouldn't be me that my best wasn't my first, you know, that my first was something that I could work towards being even better. Um, that first book, I mean, I, I it's really pitched as horrible people doing horrible things to one another. So it was a whole kind of new litany of reviews of being like, I hated everybody, but I love the book. <laughs> so I found that really nothing changed in five years. It was kind of the same conversation about it. <laughs> well, you've sold me. That that is oh, that's okay. right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, now you've written about the film industry, the publishing industry. What's the fascination with the business of storytelling? Um, I think for me, I mean, in retrospect, it, it 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 happened not too long after I started, but those few years of really struggling and trying to get an agent and book deals and everything, I think felt like many more years than it was. So I think I had a lot of just like anger towards the public <laughs> at, at the beginning, which, you know, looking back, it's like, I think every writer kind of needs to go through that and you only get better in terms of every kind of rejection you get. But there, there is this element of sort of these gatekeepers that control everything and control these careers. And it still happens to this day, even though things are changing a little bit. Um, and I, I, and I think I want a lot of other writers just, I don't know, like shake things up as much as possible and kind of bring the publishing world into the 21st century because like they're lagging behind a little bit in some ways. Well, that's interesting coming from a guy who sits in nature under a tree like yeah. Thoreau to write his book. That's true. That's true. All right. I'm a little bit of a hypocrite. I mean, you know, uh, for me, I, I'm born and raised in New York City and I live in Midtown and pre-COVID, it's chaos all the time. So Central Park, uh, where, I, where I work pretty much every day, it's, it's my way of escaping the city and, you know, my own type of meditation. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to stay here as long as I have without those park space. And even now in COVID times, 
parks have been literally everything. I mean, the absence of anything to do in New York City now, um, the only option is really to go to a park. Um, so it, it's it's really just been like a godsend almost. Well, uh, Lee, thanks for chatting with me today. And uh, we'll let you get back out to that tree and uh, and keep typing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me, Eric. Yeah, I don't know if riding outside would work for me. I kind of like my dark cavern-like room where I'm shut in and I'm surrounded by books. You know, but I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I should try it. I might write a very different kind of book. You never know. Well, my next guest is author Lydia Kang. She's the author of the brand new novel, Opium and Absinthe, as well as A Beautiful Poison, The Impossible Girl, and some young adult novels. Her new one is at least two books in one, maybe more. It's a murder mystery plus vampires. So check out my talk with Lydia Kang. Lydia, uh, opium and absinthe is a bit of a, a genre mashup. There's a mystery here, but there's also vampires, maybe? Uh, what made you not want to dive cleanly into one genre or the other? So I kind of have a problem with this. A lot of my books, they're exactly the kind of book that you can't make a nice, clean tagline about. I've always uh-huh. had trouble with taglines <laughs> in my books because... They're never one thing, and I smush a lot of different genres and stuff like that into my book. So it's a bad habit of mine, and I think it's because I just I get interested in a lot of different things, and I want to stick them all in the book. It sounds like you're the kind of writer who one day is going to write that you know 1500 page epic that just goes off in a thousand different tangents, <laughs> has multiple storylines and timelines. Is that something that's in your future? You know, there are days where I'm like, that would be really cool to do, but I don't know if I have the attention span <laughs> to stick <laughs> with it for 1500 pages because I do get, I get bored after a while. Like, you know, usually halfway through writing my book, you know, when you, you meet that sort of saggy middle part, um, uh-huh. I start like cheating on my book. I start looking at like, oh God, I would love to write about this. And I start researching something else. And so I don't think I have the attention span to do something so complex and and that many layers. Well, you seem to have no interest whatsoever in writing about the present day. So uh, wh- what is the attraction about writing 120 years ago or even farther back, like in The Impossible Girl, or the future in, like in your young adult works? That's a good question. I, I used to actually not like history at all. Like I was, I was that kid in high school and college that like never was interested in history classes. I didn't seek it out. And I don't know if it's because the material wasn't presented in, in, in a way that made it interesting. But now that I'm sort of older, you know, I'm in my 40s, um, I find looking back in time to be this incredible lens into who we are now. And so it's pretty fascinating to me to go back and find, oh, you know, the spoon that I'm using actually has a history behind it. Or, you know, there's a reason why, you know, we treat things a certain way because a thousand years ago we did it such and such. So all of that I find incredibly fascinating, like this constant thread we have that links us to the past in our history. So I, I've had so much fun delving into that with my books. I, I think in the future, I will be writing um, present time, um, partially out of sheer laziness, because the research, <laughs> the research is so, it takes up so much time. Well, and, but you don't, you don't have to go back as far as you do. Like you say, I mean, you, you could go back into the 90s and, you know, write about your own teenage years or something. <laughs> 
the research is already there. You live through it. I know. And I would love to go back and write about um, the sort of late 80s, early 90s when I was um, in my very young adulthood and stuff like that. So I have stories bouncing around um, in that realm. I just haven't found a good plot for them yet. So I'm still thinking about it. All right. Well, now, I, I technically, I guess I should be calling you Dr. Kang uh, because you are a physician. Uh, but you have used your medical expertise to unusual effect in your novels to write about things like, you know, poisonings and grave robbings. I mean, why, why not to write a medical thriller? You know, my, um, my agent keeps asking me to do that. He keeps saying, like, <laughs> will you please just write a medical thriller? You know, I'll, I'll maybe get there eventually. I tend to fall in love with a concept and an idea, and it's sometimes just inconveniently located a hundred years ago. Um, so it's just, it just hasn't happened yet. And I haven't thought up a good, a good concept or a good idea yet, but um, that would be easy to do. I mean, one of the best things about having a background in science and medicine is that anytime I have to tackle that kind of stuff, it's super easy for me to do the research or I don't have to do the research. I just kind of off the top of my head know um, a lot of stuff. And so it's made it really easy for me to delve into um, these little pieces of science and chemistry and pathology. Well, and you're in a difficult position because I'm sure now you get writers who are always wanting to ask writerly advice, but they might also ask you to, you know, look at a rash or something. <laughs> that does happen. It does happen. <laughs> and uh, I have to sort of like um, kindly sort of steer them towards their own doctor if possible. Um, <laughs> Luckily, I haven't gotten very many requests for people saying like, can you just call in a prescription for me? I just need this rash cream. And, and I'm like, I, can't, I really shouldn't do that. That's probably not a good idea. <laughs> Opium and Absence takes place in New York City in 1899. So you have, uh, you know, right about the turn of the century. Anytime that we flip over a century, there's a lot of uh, things in the air, shall we say. And uh, one of the things that Tilly Pembroke is dealing with is uh, the possibility of vampires. Is uh, is that something that, w were there any vampire scares in New York City? Was that something that, I know you hear about them in Eastern Europe and people being buried with, uh, you know, putting cages over the grave sites and stuff to prevent the, them from coming out of the grave or anything. But is was that any part of your research? Was there ever any sort of vampire scare in New York City? So, yes, actually there is. Um... Oh. There is some stuff and it actually shows up in the book. So one of um, Tilly Pembroke's goal is to figure out, well, if someone's, if there's a vampire in New York that's killing people and draining their blood and biting them, like, um, first of all, is that real on a paranormal level? And in, and her sensibility, which is a pretty much a very fact-finding, um, truth-seeking kind of personality, is that it can't possibly be be the being that we know of as like the forever alive and killing people kind of vampire from the books is is what's actually happening and she actually does the research so she goes to the archives um you know at uh, the herald in the world to find out like hey when has this happened where someone's maybe risen from the dead or people have thought that there are vampires and what what was the situation there and so so she actually does the research herself which is great because i basically did the research first and then i let Tilly do it in the book so she looks up these um cases where people would say um you know, this person died um, in New England, and then right after that they were buried, their um, 
you know, a family member started to succumb and get weak and, and like seem to be drained of their, their sort of life energy. And then another family member and another family. And so they would dig up the original person who got sick and like burn them up um, because they were convinced that they were rising from the dead and sucking the life force out of these people. Um, wow. And I think in some cases they had to like eat the ashes of like the dead person in order what? to survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like pretty gross. Um but these things were in the news and they were, you know, they were happening enough in the late 1800s that the concept wasn't completely off the wall. And so that's why it was a perfect time because you couldn't do it now because nobody, everybody knows like it's not really possible. I'm, I'm sure if you dug probably not even too far into the surface, you could find a decent amount of people who still think it's possible today. <laughs> I think that with anything in the world, there's somebody out there who believes it. No matter how off the wall, no matter how much science has disproven it, there's always going to be someone who believes like, oh, it's possible, you know? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> hey, there you go. Well, and Tilly it does have sort of this, this problem in the book is she is someone who relies on facts and she does have to sort of reconcile that with the possibility as she's digging uh, you know, finding out that that this may actually be a possibility. I mean, that's that, that's one of her central conflicts in in the book, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of her central conflicts is just trying to figure out if if it's possible and if it could, why and how, and trying to put all that together so um, so she can really find you know this this person who killed um, her sister and and you know possibly other people as well. So. Um, so she has that sort of rabid curiosity to try to find uh, to try to find the truth, but the worst part of it is that she's really confined. You know, like these days, if you want to get some information, you just get on your computer and you start googling. If you want to go right. walk somewhere and look something up, as long as you're not trespassing, you know, you you can do whatever you want. And back in her time, she was very very restricted in what she was allowed to do. She was watched all the time. She's literally physically confined by yeah. the clothing that she wore. I mean, it was it was just a completely different scenario for her. And so the things, the trappings that she has to get through to get information is just stuff we don't even have to think about anymore. Well, and then her other conflict is uh, kind of right there in the title with uh, opium and absence. She is uh, uh, well, let's say hooked on laudanum. Uh, and laudanum is that's it's an opioid, right? It's basically liquid heroin. Is that what? <laughs> oh, so so laudanum is um is a particular sort of elixir that has opiates in it. So it has an opium extract in it. So it's okay. got opium, usually some alcohol, and it had a couple other ingredients to try to make it taste good. But laudanum had been around <laughs> for a couple hundred years, and it was one of those sort of you know again you could just sort of find it anywhere. But it was a go to medicine that people kept in their cabinet for all sorts of different ailments. Well, she had a broken bone, so she had a reason to be on right. painkillers, but, you know, kind of evolved into something more. It makes me wonder uh, what kind of extra research that you possibly did into how this affects somebody. I mean, obviously with your medical background, you know already a lot of how someone would act and, and the things that they would, would be able and not be able to do if they were on these uh, elixirs as you say they're they're hard drugs i mean I, I feel like you would i would be out like a light and just sleeping all day <laughs> yeah i mean I, and i think that's a lot of people don't really do very well with taking opioids or opiates they just don't like what it does to their body but um but it can you know at the right dose um it it 
can uh, be euphoric and give people this really fantastic feeling. And I think that's the real danger with taking medication if you get to that point. But also just on top of that, you know, people who are using opioids for very legitimate reasons, you know, if you use it for a period of time, your body does become dependent on it. It's not the same thing as addiction, but that physical dependence um, can sometimes lead to some problematic behaviors if they don't know how to deal with it correctly. And I think it's kind of important for people. I wasn't trying to really lecture people on addiction or anything, but I, I wanted people to sort of get inside the mind of somebody that they could sympathize with and understand how it could happen. Um, even though yeah. as, as you're reading it, you're like, don't do that. <laughs> like, you can't <laughs> do that. But it still happens, you know. Well, but that, that's what we do as writers is we, we continually throw roadblocks at our characters. And I mean, it's it's not good enough just to be you know, devastated by her sister's death. It's not good enough just to be wondering if there's vampires about. She has to be battling with this uh, dependency. Yeah. And it was this really weird time, too, because, you know, nowadays we are a lot more um, understanding about what some of the risks are. And, you know, there are all these restrictions in place so that you can't just get it off of your grocery door, your grocery shelf. But back then, there were a lot of mixed feelings about it. You know, it was very readily available. And then like heroin came on the market, and it was supposed to be this great, non-addictive medication. <laughs> and um, so, you know, and some people were like, no, no, it's terrible. Like temperance societies were all like, stop using this stuff. Um, and yet it was, it was out there and it was, a, it was an easy go-to when, you know, so much of medicine was not figured out and people needed treatment for a lot of stuff. Well, so I have to ask, what's, uh, what's your biggest vice? Oh my God, probably bread. <laughs> <laughs> a, a little more innocuous than laudanum and opiates. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a little innocuous until you find yourself eating like half a loaf of bread every day during the pandemic, <laughs> and you realize that you might have a problem. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to say that we have become the cliche, and we are like sourdough like bread bakers, and we've been baking a ton of bread, and it's oh. amazing. Yeah. Which is- so you're, you're you you went you're making your own, and you have one of those jars of the weird sourdough mix or whatever. Yes. Yeah. He's sitting in my fridge. His name is Sour Doug. <laughs> Wow. He's a good boy. He's a good boy. He makes us lots of good bread. (laughs) Boy, I wish I had a follow-up to that, but I don't even (laughs) know. Well, at least every time I look at my family during quarantine and think we're all cracking up, I'm going to feel a little bit better about it since now I know at least we're not naming bread. And, you know, Lydia and I talked for another 15 minutes uh, after this about food. And uh, frankly, I think we should have our own food podcast next. I would be into that. So, Lydia, give me a call. My final guest this week is Timothy J. Smith, author of Fire on the Island, as well as several other thrillers set in far-flung international locales. Timothy is an American by birth, but I caught up with him in France to talk about writing books set all over the world. Timothy, I am catching you in a foreign land, and uh, that is appropriate because you like to write about locations all across the world, like your new novel, Fire on the Island, which takes place in Greece. This is kind of a softball question for you, knowing a little bit of your history, but uh, have you always been a wanderer? Yes, I have. I, um, I've always liked to travel. I think I picked that up a little bit from my father, not, not too much because we really never traveled much except back to where our 
family came from, which was Iowa, but we had moved to California. I have a story I can tell about it, which is in my, when I was in sixth grade, my elementary school had a fundraiser dinner. And I sat across the table from this guy who seemed very old to me. He's probably 35 years old. But he told me he'd been to 40 countries and spoke five languages. And sort of on the spot, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So uh, yeah, I've always been a wanderer. Wow. Well, you and I have something in common. Uh, my, maybe not the uh, the travel there. I was also born in Iowa, and, and uh, then we relocated to California for a little while. So uh, look at that. That's exactly what happened to me. I, I think we were three years. I was three years old when we moved to California, but we went back every summer uh, to Iowa for a month or two. That's in my blood. I was a big part of my soul, in a sense. I want to say the stories I grew up with were great, and I haven't used those stories yet, but. I will when I write my American novel. I've written about Iowa a couple times, I think a lot because it's untraveled territory for a lot of people, you know, living in California. And then I moved from there across the country to Connecticut. And when I landed in Connecticut, all the kids in my school were immediately suspicious, like Iowa, (laughs) it was flyover country, you know, did did you have cows in your yard? You know, there was... It, it was it was exotic in a way that uh, you know the the places that you write about art I think to a lot of Americans yeah <laughs> could be yeah when when you're starting out and saying uh, okay this this story I've I've got these characters I'm going to drop them in a situation does where does the location fit in uh, you building the story are you starting with characters and then you drop them in a place or are you saying oh I want to write about Greece I want to write about Warsaw which comes what first? really comes first for me is the idea of what do I want people to know about. So I want my stories to be illuminating in some way. I've always had a, a really strong sense of social justice. And I, I chose a career uh, that took me all over the world where I worked with low-income people. And I draw on those experiences for my stories. So I don't really start with the characters. I'll say, okay, I want to write about human trafficking because I want people to know about it. Uh, so what kind of characters do I need and where where should I place that? And when I did write a novel about that, which is my novel, Cooper's Promise, I had to decide, was it, was I going to do it with Eastern European women who were trafficked or African women who were trafficked? And there are reasons why I made the choice to go to Africa in that case. I always write about places or set stories where I've lived for a fairly long time or I know very well. So when I wrote about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I it just ended two and a half years of managing the U.S. government's first significant project to help Palestinians at the start of the peace process. Yeah. And, I, and I wanted to wow. tell that story. But that's how I go about it. I, I choose sort of the, the basic s- subject, like is about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or in my newest book, uh, Fire on the Island, which takes place in Greece. I know Greece very, very well. I have probably spent a a total of seven years of my life there. Uh, my first my first job uh-huh. after college was there. For the last 15 years, my partner and I have been going to the island of Lesbos and where all the refugees are and, the, and this small village was really ground zero for them. I wanted to write a book that was really an homage to, to Greece because of all it's given me, but also talk about how, do, how does a village like that really survive a national fiscal crisis and a refugee crisis and and the kind of conflicts that happen in a village that's really very, very small. That's where my stories come from. Well, and here we are in Pride Month here in the States, uh, and we have in Fire on the Island, we have Nick 
D'Amigos, uh, a gay FBI agent who's tracking down an arsonist. And uh, Nick also gets involved in a little bit of romance along with the arson. I mean, romance and thrills, they really always go on hand in hand, don't they? They, they give you this same uh, sort of, uh, they speed up your heart rate, don't they? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I, I think what um, what's a little bit different with a gay kind of thriller or relationship versus what's more traditional is that it's it's a little bit more balanced and it's more complicated. So it really gives the reader an interesting window into the local culture and how people respond to certain things and how open they can be or not or or not be, that kind of thing. You're right that there is usually kind of a romance in a thriller, but sometimes it's pretty harsh on on the women in thrillers if it's a traditional thriller. Right. <laughs> They're often the ones who are victims of, of a very of a harsh situation. Yes, and had having to be rescued by a, a dashing hero. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, now you've written about the big government agencies before, and with all this international travel in your background, some would say that you have the perfect background to be an excellent spy. <laughs> uh, I mean, is there anything that you want to confess to everyone here right now, or would you probably have to kill no, me? No, neither one. I sort of wish it were true because I think I'd be able to write better books. It'd be a little bit more interesting. But <laughs> when I was going through college and when my political consciousness was being developed, the CIA particularly, they were the bad guys in a sense. They, we went, you know, we went around the world. We killed Allende. We killed social democrats, and you know, we did some pretty terrible things. So I, I would never have consciously chosen to do that, and I, um, I was never approached uh, to be a spy. No, that, that's exactly what a spy would say. I know, but that, but it's really <laughs> true. And at this point. There's so little that I could tell that would be after 20 or 30 years of not working. What what what, what secrets would I would I have that anybody <laughs> would even care about? Well, and Nick is uh, an FBI agent uh, in a foreign outpost in, in Greece, and I, honest to goodness, I had no idea that we had FBI agents in foreign outposts. I mean, you think of CIA as being the international uh, thing. So that was uh, that was new to me in this book. Is that something that uh, is is usually kept a little bit under wraps? You can Google it. It's all there. You basically huh. just go on the FBI website and they're all over the world. Any place where there's drug trafficking, the refugee issue, terrorism, things like that where there's crime, they're not, they're not intelligence officers. They're crime solvers, even overseas. They basically help, you know, counterpart policemen or detectives or investigators. Well, it's always good to learn something when, when you read a book. Now, as a screenwriter, a playwright, and a novelist, is the right outlet for a story dependent on the material? Or do you think you can adapt any story to any format? I personally could probably adapt any story to any format. I, 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 I'm pretty good at, at the three formats that I use. If I were to have stayed in the United States, I probably would be beating my head against the wall and trying to become a playwright because I, I totally love the theater. When we moved to France, I realized that stage writing just simply wasn't going to happen for me. But I've ended up with novels. Um, I always write a screenplay adaptation of a novel because I think it's a great editing tool. It's my last edit of my novel. Yeah, Screenwriting gives you no room for really side stories because you have sort of a fixed number of pages. And it also it also brightens the, the dialogue. So I use it as a tool to fit out my novels now. 
No, I like that as a, as, as a, uh, like you say, a way to, to make sure that you're, uh, you're trimming right. the fat as you go. Not getting lost in backstories and that go on forever and stuff like that. Cause you just can't do that. I mean, a novel gives you the, the ability to do that, but it ultimately could be kind of, I just wish somebody added to this down a couple of pages right here. <laughs> I think I feel that about 90% of the books that I read. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before I let you go, I want to make one more pitch to uh, maybe the next novel needs to be set in Iowa because, uh, you know, really, I think you can take any of these stories and adapt them to, to any locale, right? Or, or do you think uh, the stories are, are completely dependent on where you set them? Sure, but it'd be a very different story. Uh, I do have an, an American novel in mind, and I was going to write that next, but I'm finding the situation in America to be a little bit depressing and not something that I want to take on. And I am working on a new book. Uh, it's set in Istanbul. And it's a very exciting piece of work. I'm not back in Iowa yet. <laughs> uh, I think you made the right choice then. Yeah. So America today is, uh, it's, it's a, as much on fire as the, the islands are in right, your yeah. new novel. If I may bring it back around. Well, there you go. Another trio of writers that you should definitely check out. I want to also mention my own latest work. My entry in the Guns and Tacos series, titled Burritos and Bullets, came out this week. It's a super fast novella-length read that's part of a great series Down and Out Books has going on. You should really check them all out. They're a lot of fun and they're super fast. And the full collection of season two of A Grifter's Song is out now, and that features my novella The Sound of Breaking Bones. That's also from Down and Out Books, and the Grifter songs are a great, really fun uh, collection of novellas. If you like people on the grift, these are all fantastic little novellas written by a bunch of different authors. It's great to see them all collected in, in one place now, so you can check both of those new releases out. Well, you can always find me on Twitter, at WriterTypes. The archive of past episodes is at WriterTypesPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and share with a friend. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.